You're listening to the Warrior Priest Podcast. And this is the Warrior Priest Podcast, midweek debrief number 30. And I am the Warrior Priest, Donovan Riley. Today, I want to talk about something that has been on my mind of late because I was listening to someone else on another podcast discuss the brutal distinction between the idea of killing and the reality of it. When I was young, when I was a little boy, I became fascinated by war and war heroes. I think primarily because I was introduced to that by my best friend, Eric, who his father had served in Korea and had not seen much combat, if any, that I can remember him talking about. He was primarily in the rear. As a consequence, the way in which Alan, Eric's father, talked about war, talked about killing, conflict, was very positive. Whereas my father, who had served two tours of combat in Vietnam, in the jungle, had killed enemy combatants, men, women, and children, old and young, and watched his best friend be vaporized in front of him by an explosion, had nothing positive to say about war or killing or conflict. And that's how I grew up then with this dichotomy in my own mind, in my own imagination, between the way in which my best friend's father, and therefore my best friend, glorified war and killing and conflict, and why we used our pellet guns to wage war against the Nazis in the hollow behind his house and out in the cornfields across the street from his house. It's why we subscribed to Soldier of Fortune magazine and played video games that glorified war. Whereas in my house, none of that was allowed. I wasn't allowed to talk about it. I definitely wasn't allowed to participate in that. The closest I was allowed to come was to play Star Wars in the backyard. Lasers, lightsabers, those were okay. TIE fighters and X-wing fighters, those were okay. But not plastic M16s or replica grenades or 45 replica BB guns, these kinds of things that you can't really buy anymore because we've nerfed the world. But in my day, when I was 10 or 11, you could go to the Army Surplus Store and buy a BB gun that was an exact replica of a standard issue 45. And growing up this way then, my mind was awash in conflicting ideas and stories about war. And it was that way for quite a while for me. Because I had never really been punched in the face. I had never really been in an actual conflict where my life was at stake or the lives of those around me were threatened. And it really wasn't until I was consumed by alcohol and drug abuse and started selling drugs and hanging out with drug dealers that I even encountered those types of situations where 
my life was threatened. There was the imminent threat of death. People around me died for various reasons. But even then, because I was so drug-addled and drunk most of the time, it didn't, it never felt like it was going to touch me. As if I were swimming through an ocean of violence and immorality and outlaws. But it was never going to touch me. I was never going to get arrested and go to jail. I was never going to get shot. I was never going to get tangled up in a situation that I couldn't get out of. It really wasn't until I went to Mexico and lived in Mexico and held a baby while he died or saw people suffer, really suffer, in ways that I had only imagined and couldn't have imagined until I saw it from my own eyes, that I began to take a different look at the world as a whole and people in general. I stopped feeling sorry for myself. I stopped seeing myself as a victim. I stopped seeing the world as an unfair place that owed me something, that I was entitled to everything. I also then accepted and acknowledged the reality of violence and conflict and killing because I saw it around me all the time. And not just killing or dying in the sense of someone was sick or someone was born with a birth defect, but I'm living in a a rural third world I'm living in a third world country in a rural area. People are killing animals all the time. The butcher shops don't have indoor refrigeration. So they're slaughtering animals every morning and they're hanging the meat up and people go to the market and they buy the meat and all that goes with unrefrigerated meat. And that became my normal. That became usual, typical. That's what I expected. And I grew up that way too. I grew up hunting and fishing. My family's a hunting and fishing family. I've been there when deer or bear have been field-dressed. I've been there and had to pluck geese and ducks and pheasants and quail and partridge. I've been there for that and the butchering of those things. I've grown up around farms and farmers and people that butcher their own meat. Pigs, turkeys, you name it. But I never had to do it myself because I was a child and therefore I wasn't really allowed to do it by the adults. And as a consequence, I was always there for these things that were happening, and I was fascinated by it, but I never had to do it myself. So again, I never had that tactile relationship with the animal that was going to be butchered or slaughtered. I wasn't the one who was holding the gun. I wasn't the one who was brandishing the knife. I wasn't the one who showed up with the pipe and the baseball bat and the axe handle to beat someone's head in. That was never me. I may have been the one who instigated it. I may have been a witness to it, a bystander, but I wasn't the one who perpetrated it. And then when my wife and I were at seminary, something happened that kind of changed that perspective for me that I want to talk about today, which is while I was at seminary, it was our second year. It was right after our first son was born. So he's still a baby, he's barely one year old. And my wife got a job working for the grounds crew uh, for the apartment complex that we lived at because she wanted a job, she wanted something to do during the day. And she was paired with 
a gentleman who worked for the grounds crew and then eventually took over the grounds crew. He was also a student, but he was a university student studying economics at the University of Minnesota. And he was from Tanzania. His name was Andy, Andy Maguro. And what was interesting about Andy, when my wife met him, she grew up in a suburb of Portland, Oregon. And the most that she had done as far as groundskeeping, landscaping, and yard work was trimming the bushes around her family's house and the little, and in my opinion, pathetic garden they had in the backyard that was barely 10 feet by 10 feet. So meeting Andy then, what Andy discovered immediately was everyone else on the grounds crew treated him like he was dumb. In our opinion, because he was not American, he was African with a thick accent and was learning English as he went. And there was a certain sense of condescension when people instructed him how to take care of the flowers, how to trim the hedges, how to prune the trees and so forth. When, if they had simply asked Andy about what his life was like before he came to the United States with his family, they would have learned. He grew up doing all of these things in the village that he grew up in. And his village in Tanzania was at the base of Mount Kilimanjaro, a very rural village. So he grew up hunting. And he grew up learning how to not piss off lions. <laughs> he grew up understanding that when you go to get water, which meant his mother had to walk eight, hour, eight miles a day to get water, twice a day, you had to learn how to get water from the pond without being eaten by crocodiles. You had to learn how to live alongside monkeys who would come into your house and take food off your table. You had to learn how to cultivate the land. You had to learn how to hunt. You had to learn how to take care of yourself and your neighbors. So by the time Andy got to the seminary and his wife was there attending classes at the seminary, that's why they lived there. He was at the university studying economics. She was at the seminary studying theology because she wanted to go back and teach theology, open a school for women, a theological school for women to educate women in Tanzania and teach them the Bible, teach them theology, but also then use that as a vehicle to teach reading and writing literacy to these different tribal women that were around where she grew up at. If they'd asked Andy the question, he could have told them that he was at that point in his life, a master gardener, so to speak. But they didn't. And so Andy would listen kindly and politely, and he would nod his head and smile. And then when they left, he would go back to doing what he knew how to do. And that's how my wife learned from him how to garden, how to prune and um, take care of bushes and shrubs and trees, how to grow herbs, how to make cuttings from shoots, all of these things. And as a consequence of Andy's tending to the grounds, the flower beds thrived. The bushes and the trees prospered because he knew what he was doing. He had a relationship with everything around him and he was comfortable working with it. And that's how my wife got to know Andy and then how Andy ended up inviting us to their apartment for dinner. And we met his wife, Ellie. We met their children. And we became close friends with them. They were some of our closest friends when we were at seminary. And 
through my relationship with Andy and Ellie and getting to know them myself and their children, I was then invited by Andy to go with a group of Tanzanians to a farm outside the city to slaughter goats. And I had never actually been around anybody who slaughtered goats. Like I said, pigs, ducks, geese, chickens, turkeys, farm animals, wild animals. I'd been around enough of that, plenty of that. But never a goat. But it was an opportunity. I wasn't going to say no, because what kind of a man am I? If I'm invited by other men to go and kill goats, and then we pay for the goats, we slaughter the goats, we quarter it, chop up the meat, put it in bags, and we bring it back home, we have goat. Of course, I'm, I'm down for this experience. And so I go with these men, and they fully expected that I would just be a bystander because of their interactions previously with other Americans on this subject. And yet, when we got there, I picked out the goat that I wanted to pay for and that I was going to slaughter. And when the time came, they showed me how to do it, how to slit the throat, how to bleed the goat out, and then how to render the goat, how to get the internal organs out of it, the stomach without puncturing the stomach and ruining the meat, how to get the skin off the goat, everything. So I did this. I grabbed my goat, pulled back the head, slit the throat, let it bleed out. What I wasn't prepared for was the sound that a goat makes when it's dying. For those of you who don't know, the sound of a goat when it's dying sounds like a baby crying. In fact, it sounds exactly like a baby crying. And that was a shock to me to hear that. And it was an exercise in self-control and discipline to stand there and hold the, the goat by its ears to maintain my grip on the goat, the body of the goat, so it didn't, you know, squirm away, run off. And I held it while it died, and it screamed like a crying baby. And the blood splashed off the concrete floor, the killing floor, and splashed all over my shoes and over my pants, splashed up onto my shirt. And then I set about cutting the goat up. And when we were all done, we came back home and got out of the car and I had to change all of my clothes in the parking lot because where I lived at, it was actually illegal to walk around in public with blood on your clothing. I didn't know that until they informed me because these Tanzanians had been actually pulled over by the police previous to this, covered in blood, bags of meat in the back of the car and in the trunk. And of course, the police, their first question is, what in God's name is going on here? And that's how then I learned about this public ordinance, the city ordinance against walking around in public with blood on your clothes. But a side effect of, of killing goats, slaughtering goats, was that night, then when I went to bed, I couldn't sleep because all I could hear was this goat crying. And I have a one-year-old baby right next to me in bed. And it bothered me. It bothered me a lot. I couldn't stop hearing the goat crying. And this persisted for three or four nights until I was finally able to shove it out of my mind. In a way, it bothered me that I couldn't just move on from that. I couldn't get over it. I couldn't push it out of my mind. But in another way, I reflected on it and I thought soberly about it and what that meant. And for me anyways, at that time and then since then, what it meant was that I had taken a life 
And maybe taking the life of an animal isn't that big of a deal to some. But it was the first time that I had taken the life of another living being, knowingly, willingly taken a life. And a couple things happened as a consequence. One was I had to contend with my feelings about the sound the goat made and how it related to me being a new father and this child, how it related to my past, listening to babies cry in the clinic as they died, listening to other people moan and cry out as they died. But to take a life, even the life of an animal, a creature, whether you believe in God or not, whether you believe that everything is created by a higher power or not, I do. And at that time, I was at the seminary, so obviously I'm a believer, a true believer, and I believe that all life is precious and sacred. It's not to be treated as a small thing. It's not cheap. And that all life, whether it's plants or animals or people, all life is precious to me then because I see God, I see the creator in his creation in this sense. So it was no small thing then for me to take a life. And also then every single part of that animal was important to me that we use as much as possible and that I eat it all and not let any of it go to waste because I had taken a life and this goat was sacrificed so that I could put food on my family's table. There's a certain then reverence or respect for the animal when you hunt, for example whether you deer hunt, elk hunt, bear hunt, as my uncles did, when you kill an animal, whether it would be with a gun or a bow, or you trap it, as I also learned how to trap from one of my other uncles, trapping beaver, mink, ermine, other creatures, when you purposefully set out to take the life of an animal and you do it, you shoot it, you run it through, you trap it, whatever. For me, anyways, there's a different relationship that I have now to that animal and then to that meat because I took life. And for me, only God has the power to take life or should have the power to take life. And so when I take a life, am I acting on behalf of God or am I acting on behalf of myself? Is it selfless? Am I doing this to provide for my family or is it selfish? I'm doing it because I get some sort of psychopathic kick out of killing. These are all the things that you contend with when you kill a creature or when you kill another human being. My son, my oldest son, just got a job at the local butcher shop, which is fantastic. I kind of persuaded him to not apply at the bookstore because me and the missus, his mother, we like free meat or at least a discount. So we're like, no, take the butcher shop job. I think you'll like it better. But my son is going to have to learn this now working at a butcher shop. Not only will he learn how to cut meat and wrap meat and put it in the freezer and so forth, he's got to learn how to render and how to cut and quarter, which in my opinion is a, is a life skill that will serve him anytime that he needs a job, whether it be in a butcher shop or a restaurant or working for an outfitter, wherever it may be, he's got a practical skill now that he's going to build upon. But I'm not going to talk to him about these emotions and these thoughts, because if I did, 
it would only be in the abstract for him, the same way it was in the abstract for me when I was a boy and my friend's dad would talk about war and glorify war. And I think that's the thing for me anyways, is that when we're young, and now as a parent and looking at my own children, when we're young, we have these ideals. And that's what they are, they're ideals. They're not real. And when reality crashes in on our ideals, it can be heartbreaking. It can be very, very heartbreaking. And it can cause us no end of pain and heartache. But if we can recognize that there's a benefit, there's something to be learned, even from the act of killing, even if that benefit is to learn that I don't like killing, or I no longer want to hunt for my food, or I no longer want to butcher my own meat, or I don't want to kill anymore. If you're a soldier and you put down your gun at the end of the day and say, you know what, I've had my belly of killing like my dad did. My dad just put his gun down and walked away and said, I can't, I can't, no more. He was going to apply for the honor guard in Washington, D.C. But after his second tour of duty and the things that he had to do during that second tour, it was too much. It was just too much. And like I said, he came home, at least his body came home, but he was a dead man. Whoever he was before going to Vietnam, he was not that man coming home. And he was never able to recover that person. And as a consequence, he wasn't able to communicate that to me. And even if he could have, no matter how well he expressed it, I wouldn't have understood because I hadn't lived through it myself. And it was all, for me, ideas. And the competition between one person glorifying war and another person saying, no, the reality of war is it's horrible and it's horrifying and it sucks and that's why people come home and put a gun in their mouth and swallow a bullet, is that they've had their fill of killing, they've had their fill of carnage and destruction and violence, the reality of it, not the idea of it. And they couldn't, they couldn't get free of the tendrils of those experiences. In a lesser sense, it's like now, I don't try and explain to people why I like to fight, why I like to spar, why I do what I do in mixed martial arts. Because unless you do it, you simply can't comprehend what it means and what it does to you mentally, emotionally, and physically. You can't explain that. I was joking last week, when you stub your toe, you got to put ice on it. You can't do any more work around the house. Probably going to have to t- you know, take your weight off of it for the rest of the day. But I've broken my toe in the middle of sparring, taped my toe to the toe next to it, and then continued sparring. Why? Well, it's different. It's just different. There's two different things happening. There are two different dynamics at work. But to try and explain that to somebody who's never been through it, who doesn't understand or comprehend the mindset, the the approach and attitude of someone who's engaged in that activity, that fight, it exists for them only as an idea, but not as a reality. And in a certain sense, I, I wonder if it's not fair to expect people to understand violence who have never engaged in violence or to understand killing who have never had to slaughter an animal, who have never hunted and killed an animal, who have never had to point a gun at another human being and pull the trigger. I've never had to pull the trigger. I've never had to do that. And God willing, I never will have to do that. But that doesn't mean that I can't respect 
someone who has done that and respect that they don't want to talk about it, that they don't want to try and explain or express it to me because how can I understand that when I've never done it? I can empathize. I can sympathize. I can say thank you for your service. But what does that really communicate? What does that express other than I can't comprehend what you're trying to explain to me right now? But that experience with Andy and the other Tanzanians of slaughtering the goat and then the direction my life took after that and how I changed my whole perspective on how I viewed other people, that moment really cemented for me the sacredness of life. And I learned a lot from that. But I also learned from that that in life you can't escape being somehow complicit in the death of others or other creatures. If you eat, you are somehow complicit in the butchering of other creatures. Even if you're a vegan or a vegetarian, you're still complicit in the death of life. Lots of animals and birds died during the harvesting of the plants that you're eating. That's a simple fact. There's ethics, yes. There's morals, yes. I'm not going to get too deep into that because I just want to stick to the just raw conversation about what benefit, if any, there is from killing. And as much as it can horrify and terrify and drive us to extremes of human emotion and action, I do believe there's a benefit. There's something to be learned from killing. However, that being said, the second thing that I learned over the years from my experiences in other countries, from my time working in hospitals, from my time butchering sheep or yeah, butchering goats and other animals, is that I don't seek out situations where I can engage in conflict and violence and potentially have to kill another human being. I do not seek that out. Mixed martial arts and fighting may have cemented that for me or reinforced that for me, but I learned that a long time ago. There's consequences for the simple act of slaughtering a goat. There's consequences for holding a baby in your hands while it dies. There's consequences for holding your brother's head in your lap while he bleeds out from a gaping chest wound. There's consequences for pointing a gun at another human being and killing them because it's either you and your buddies or them. There's consequences. And it might be justified. It might be morally right. It might be necessary to provide for your family. But that doesn't simply then erase the very real consequences of killing. And just like anything if we live with regret and resentment about it, if we loathe ourselves or the person that we were at that moment, then we can't learn from it and we can't better ourselves. I think of how much better I am able to communicate with people in my own community today because I have butchered my own animals and put that food on the table for my family and recognize the sanctity and the reverence that I have for life, all life, just because of that act itself. But yet, 
our society, at least in the United States in the 21st century, is so removed from the means of production of how we get that meat onto the table that we, in my opinion, have no respect for life and death as a consequence. In my opinion, if we all had to kill our own animals and grow our own food in the garden, our respect and regard, not just for the food itself, but our respect and regard for the whole process of how it gets from the seed to the table, from the newborn fawn to the buck that I'm going to shoot this deer season. All that has to happen for us to come to that point where we put the food on our table requires an immense amount of energy and attention and a lot of death. You sacrifice your time. You sacrifice your money. You sacrifice your relationships. You sacrifice a piece of yourself when you kill something else. And for me, you don't get past it, but you learn how to exist within it. And then coming out of it, you can help others. You can support and walk with others. You can speak to others in a language that they understand because they've been through it. It's just like an addiction or similar to addiction. Because I'm in recovery, I can talk with people who are slaves to their addictions and those who are in recovery. Because I've been there. I talk the language. I recognize the personality. I know how to engage that topic with other people. And I don't have to try and be someone I'm not or communicate and express an idea to someone who has no idea what I'm talking about. They've lived it. They understand the consequences. They're dealing with the consequences. I've been there. I'm dealing with the consequences. We can walk with each other. We can support each other. We can help each other when we stumble and fall to stay clean and sober. Likewise, when I didn't appreciate life, I tried to take my own life. I tried to end my own life because I saw no future for myself. I saw no hope in tomorrow. I saw no benefit to staying alive. So I chose the path of self-annihilation because I did not regard life as something that is sacred or something that is worth preserving at any cost. My appreciation for life came out of death, not as an idea, but as a reality. And the most enjoyable conversations, the most enjoyable relationships I have with other people are often with people who have been there, who have gone through it themselves. Because to a greater or lesser degree, we can learn from each other and we can speak the language of those who have killed. And there are degrees, in my opinion. Killing a goat, in my opinion, doesn't compare to killing another human being. And as a consequence, I think we need to strive to better understand where the other person's coming from because of their experience. Oh, you've never had to kill anything. You've chosen not to kill. You've never been punched in the face. You've never had to dodge bullets. You've never worried about your leg getting blown off if you take the next step across this field. You've never had a gun pointed at your face because a drug deal went bad or the drug dealer that you deal with all the time is a super paranoid cokehead who thinks that you're a DEA agent or narc. Yes, that actually happened to me. <laughs> My actual drug dealer thought I was a narc 
and therefore wanted to kill me, even though I was selling his product, which I then consumed and owed him a couple hundred bucks, which is why I also decided it would be a good time to become a missionary and go to Mexico because I had a warrant out for my arrest. So the police wanted me and a drug dealer wanted me for using up all the product I was supposed to sell and then not providing him with the money. So I had more than just altruistic motivations for fleeing the country at that time, 20 jeepers, 25 years ago now, 26 years ago, 25 years ago. So I see people who are very flippant about life and death, who don't respect life or regard other people's lives, who don't regard how hard other people had to work to make a life for themselves, to build up a business that could provide them with a means of income so they could have a house and a mortgage, so that they could have a family, so they could provide for their families, so that they could pay their workers a a living wage, a good wage, and provide health and dental care for them through insurance. We don't respect what the other person's going through when they come back from the front lines. We don't regard their service because we haven't been there. We don't have a high enough regard, in my opinion, for police officers and first responders and what they have to go through day after day after day and the trauma and the stress that that places upon them and how that changes them and it changes their view of the world and how they engage other people. I have friends who are firefighters. I have friends who are EMTs. I have friends who are police. They all tell similar stories. When you have to pick the pieces of another person up off the road. It changes how you interface with reality. It changes your relationships at home, with your family, with your friends, at church, wherever it might be. It changes you. And other people may not be able to understand that or wrap their heads around it. But is it up to then you to explain it to them in a way that they can? Or do we have to accept that they can't comprehend where we've been and what we've gone through and what we've seen? That's why we have the motivation to go seek out other people who have been through what we've been through, done what we've done, experienced what we've experienced. And that's not a knock against people that don't get it, but rather an acknowledgement on our part that I've got this, this shit that's in my head and I can't get it out. And I've got this weight in my chest that feels like my heart is being pulled down into my intestines and nobody and nothing, no amount of prayer, no amount of counseling, no amount of alcohol or drugs, no amount of hugs can change that, has changed that. But when I'm with other people who have gone through it, who are going through it, it lightens the load for that moment because I can put my burden down on the table and not have to worry about, sorry, phone call, not have to worry about whether I'm going to be judged correctly or incorrectly, whether I'm going to have to see that look on that other person's face, that look of pity, which... I have to fight back resentment when I see that look of pity. Don't pity me 
for what I've gone through. Don't pity me for what I choose to enter into. Because what I chose to do, I also chose, whether I knew it or not, because of my ideals, I chose to accept the consequences of my actions in that moment, whether I was aware of what those consequences were or not, and usually not. You learn after the fact what the consequences are. And you have to grapple with that. You have to live with that. Or you can choose to not. But what's the point of living if you choose to end your life Because the weight, the burden of carrying all those other lives on your shoulders is too heavy. Rather than, you don't have to carry that weight yourself. There are other people that will help you carry it. I'm not saying there's people that can take that weight off your shoulders. I'm not naive enough to suggest that. Because I carry around a lot of people's deaths on my shoulders. And some of them, I don't want to let go of. I don't want that burden taken off my shoulders because that weight in my heart, that heartache that I have to this day for those people that I buried, people I loved. In certain moments, I can even say I'd rather take and trade places with them because they were a better person than I am. They deserve to be here. I don't deserve to be here, but I am here. And so I have a choice today. I can live for them and honor them by living and being the best person that I can be for my wife, my kids, my congregation, my community, my training partners. I can be that guy. And I can strive to be that guy no matter how many times I fall on my face. I can get back up and not quit and be that man and honor their life and their sacrifice, their death, Even the people that I look back on and say, you didn't deserve to live. The choices you made led up to you being killed, led up to you dying. You didn't deserve to live. You made bad choices. You did evil things. I live for them too. Because I don't know how they got to that point in a lot of cases. I don't know what choices were made for them or what choices they made for themselves that resulted in them being killed. All I know is at that moment, when I was with them or I was around them, that person I know deserved to die because they were not good people and they associated with killers. But I live for them too. I remember and I learn from them and I learn from them being killed. I don't want to be that kind of a man. I don't want to be that kind of example for other people. Rather, I want to be the person who stands up and says, yeah, I lived through that. I chose to do that. I choose to accept the consequences for that. And I choose to live and honor the sacredness of life given to me by my creator in such a way that I don't dishonor their death. That when I put the food on the table that I killed or that other people killed to give me that food to put on the table to provide for my family, that's no small thing. And I think it would be irresponsible and immoral for me to treat that lightly or to treat that like it's a cheap thing, that there's not an inherent value in that act. Meeting people along the way teaches us the value of life, 
all life. And meeting people along the way and engaging with those people and entering into relationships with those people are what tear us down and build us up. It's what humbles us and builds us back up so we have a sense of self-confidence that we engaged death, that we killed. And that's no small thing. And it should never be a small thing, in my opinion, so that we can appreciate life all the more and appreciate all we have all the more. Because those who were killed or those things that were killed so that we can continue to live, sacrifice themselves for us, whether they knew it or not. And so all we have is a consequence of their sacrifices. And when we sacrifice for those people whom we love, whether we're here or after we're gone, even if they never realize or recognize what our sacrifice meant, they're benefiting from us sacrificing for them. Maybe we're never told, thank you. Maybe we're never rewarded. But is that why we do it? Is that why we choose to kill? I don't know. I think each person has to make that determination for themselves. But all I know is when I meet someone who has a great idea about how sexy it would be to go kill the enemy, go fight the Taliban, become a cop, and clean up the neighborhood, go out and hunt and provide for their family by killing their own food. I don't say much because I know they're in the realm of ideas and I'm in the realm of reality. And every once in a while, my ego gets the best of me and lies to me and convinces me that killing isn't that bad of a thing in, every, in certain situations and that maybe I should enter into a different vocation. Maybe I should pursue a different vocation where I can make a quote-unquote bigger difference standing between those who would seek to take the lives of other people selfishly. But then I'm reminded that God didn't put me in that position. He put me in the position to defend my wife and my children, to defend my congregation, to defend my neighborhood, to fight, to know how to fight, to know how to use a knife, to know how to use a gun, to hunt, to provide for my family, but also to have an enormous garden, <laughs> to revel in life, to surround ourselves with life. That's why we have two dogs. That's why I love mastiffs. These, I love big animals. I love being surrounded by plants and vegetation and flowers and vegetables and fruit. I love to work the dirt. I love to work in the garden. I love to hunt and fish. But I also recognize that that's kind of a strange thing to say. I love killing animals. That's essentially what I'm saying. I don't though. I don't love killing animals. I love hunting. Don't really love fishing. <laughs> I don't like sitting and not moving for long periods of time. What I love is that connection that I have with another living being and that I have a, a reverence and appreciation for what's happening in that moment when I'm taking a life, that that life is giving life and that that's not a small thing. 
a life for a life. And maybe if we all recognize that something has to die in order for something else to live, other human beings have to die for other human beings to live, maybe we'd have a little bit more respect for each other and a little bit more sympathy, and we'd be quicker to extend a hand of kindness rather than throw fists. Maybe we'd be more ready to forgive and forget than to shame someone and point the finger at them. But like I said, so many, most people I meet, they have no idea what the consequences of killing are because they've never had to do it. They have no consequence. They don't understand the consequence of violence or conflict. They've never been punched in the mouth. They've never been in a fight. They've never had to fight for their lives. And as a consequence, they have no reverence for life. And it's, to me, heartbreaking and tragic because life is so much sweeter to me when you can appreciate what had to happen for you to be able to eat, for you to be able to provide, for your family, for you to be able to live a life for a life. So today, anyways, and every day, I strive to appreciate the life that I have been given and all of the lives that were sacrificed so that I could be here today talking to you. If it wasn't for Andy and Ellie, if it wasn't for my experiences at the orphanage in Mexico, if it wasn't my experiences in Guatemala, if it wasn't my experiences traveling the country, if it wasn't my interaction with other people specifically, wherever I encountered them at, and what they had to teach me about life and death, I don't believe I would be the person that I am today. And so to Andy and Ellie, who are back in Tanzania, have been for a while, to all the other people who taught me, even when I wasn't listening and I didn't want to learn, thank you. Thank you for your sacrifice. Thank you for giving me life. Thank you for showing me the value of life and that there can be something to always be learned, even from killing, that it doesn't have to destroy us, that we can learn from it, we can thrive, even in the midst of it. That's all I got. That's my debrief for today. I hope that got you thinking, maybe focused on things that you were avoiding or hadn't thought about before. Whatever the case may be, I hope you benefited from this and I will talk to you again on Sunday. Thanks for subscribing. We're almost up to 200 downloads per episode. We're at 193. So it's not quite the end of the summer. It's August 26th, 2020. Got a couple more weeks until the summer is officially over for us. So I just need seven more subscribers and we'll be at 200 downloads per episode, which is my goal for the summer. Get 200 downloads. Once I get, or yeah, once I get 200 subscribers, like I said, I'll start getting some t-shirts printed up and some stickers printed up, make those available through the website and on social media. But right now, yeah, if you can find seven people to subscribe to the podcast, swag is on the way. So thank you. Thank you to everybody for supporting the podcast. Thanks for the feedback. Thanks for all you do. Thanks for being out there and listening. And remember, you have life for a reason and therefore... It's a life worth living. And if you don't think your life is worth living, reflect on all the people that have sacrificed so that you can be here today listening to this. 
and think about how you can best honor their sacrifice by living in the best way that you know how today and to grow from it, to learn from it, to constantly push forward, to not quit, but to get back up and keep going. Find those people. Search out those people who will enrich you and encourage you and stir you up and excite you to live. All right, peace.